want to turn our attention to uh, the situation in the Middle East and uh, fighting continuing, obviously, between Israel and Hamas. Hamas still holding a, a number of Israeli hostages. And look, I think a, a sane path to resolving all of this is to recognize the horrors of what Hamas inflicted uh, on October 7th, uh, to demand that the hostages be removed or be released, rather, uh, to, to remove them from custody, free them back to, to uh, Israel. And then to demand that uh, Hamas surrender here, that that would end the conflict tomorrow. Uh, and I think to recognize that a genocidal terror group uh, cannot be a part uh, of governing any sort of a Palestinian state in the future. Like there's, there's an obvious path, path to peace here. Uh, but there seems to be a tendency to put all of this on Israel, to blame Israel uh, for all of this, and to hold Israel to a much different standard. Uh, that despite the genocidal intent of Hamas, it is Israel that is being accused of genocide in a case that South Africa has brought before the International Court of Justice. And Canada's position, I, I think, is, is frustratingly vague on, on that whole situation. Uh, but also from uh, what would otherwise be described as human rights organizations. Uh, their message has been a concerning one. And it's something our next guest has noted. We're a really interesting piece uh, for the National Post. You can find it at nationalpost.com. The headline, The Deafening Silence of the International Human Rights Establishment. Uh, joining us on the line here this morning to talk more about it is Peter Bureau, founder and president of the uh, think tank Section 1, a senior fellow of the Massey College at the University of British Columbia Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies. Professor Bureau, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. I'm oh, delighted to be with you, and <clears throat> I think you set this conversation up very well with your introduction. Well, let's let's talk about you know some of the issues you get into in your piece, and we talk about groups like Amnesty International. In fact, interestingly enough, they put out a press release today. Amnesty International wants arms transfers halted to what they describe as both Israel and Palestinian armed groups. So a right. real kind of moral equivalence they're they're drawing there. But what does all of this uh, symbolize to you? Well, that's a huge question. I mean, which aspect of it are you are you asking me to comment on the, the the position that Amnesty International has taken, or a broader foreign policy issue from the Canadian perspective? Well, let's start with groups like Amnesty International, and you know the the, the approach they've taken uh, to to this, or or you know to draw that moral equivalence between Israel and, and Hamas, or you know even a refusal to recognize the the horrors and the realities of October seventh. Where do they seem off base to you, first of all? Well, okay, so you know I'm a I'm a a staunch defender of human rights and supporter of all, you know, human rights activism. The problem here and the charge that I kind of level at the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and the whole what's referred to as human rights establishment is that with, with respect to Israel, there are two issues. Number one, they've been vilifying, you know, relentlessly Israel for, for decades now. And that vilification has been based not just on you know, uh, sort of the more recent concerns about the occupation and the incursion by settlers into the West Bank. I mean, th there's very good and strong justification for criticizing Israel's policies in the West Bank and, in fact, the occupation of Gaza. The fundamental problem with the amnesty position is that it really challenges, without saying so explicitly, the legitimacy of the state of Israel to begin with in an unstated way goes back and essentially questions whether Israel has a right to exist. And it does this insidiously by referring to the, you know, the Nakba, 
which was a Nakba, the, you know, the, the terrible catastrophe of, in 1948 that involved the displacement of so many Palestinians and the loss of their land. But it doesn't mention that the 1948 War of Independence was a defensive war by Israel, you know, in response to the attacks of its Arab neighbors who weren't prepared to accept the 1947 lines drawn by the United Nations. So that's the first piece, is that there's this long-standing, un- unrelenting vilification of Israel that underpins the amnesty critique. The second piece, and this is what I'm focusing on specifically in the article yesterday, in the National Post, is that it's not just a matter of recognizing that atrocities were committed by Hamas on October 7th. It's explaining the nature of those atrocities, which are mm-hmm. genocidal in purpose. Right. They emanate from the actual mission statement of Hamas in its own charter. You know, destroy Israel from, and retake Israel from the river to the sea for Palestinians and kill Jews not just Israelis, kill Jews wherever you may find them. The human rights community completely sidesteps this issue. It acknowledges that terrible things happened on that day, but then it immediately pivots back to its favorite subject, which is, you know, the terrible things that Israel has done. And I want to be clear, my piece is not intended to defend or justify the way in which Israel is prosecuting its war in Hamas. Uh, there are terrible atrocities being committed there, uh, and the and the collateral damage, if you can call it that, uh, the tens of thousands now of Palestinians who've been killed and the million, you know, and a, you know, about eighty five percent, almost ninety percent displaced. That that can't be good. That can't be excused or justified. But Israel's right to defend itself must be justified, and Israel's response, both militarily but also psychologically, to what was a a genocidal act on October 7th uh, has to be explained, understood, and acknowledged. And it has been sidelined completely by the human rights community from the entire discussion. And the, the impact has been devastating. I mean, it's actually contributed in, in a very serious and direct way to the, to the rise of anti-Semitic expression throughout the world. Because right. that by not mentioning the pogrom, which is the actual word for what occurred on that day. It wasn't just atrocities. It was a pogrom. There was a design to Mm -hmm. it. By not acknowledging that, it effectively makes the the hatred, the public expression of Jew hatred, defensible. Okay? Right. Uh, And so that's part part of my argument. Well, and to pick up on that, because... You know, the double standard is pretty clear. It's not necessarily one that stems from anti-Semitism. I guess that's maybe the more sinister explanation. I know there are kind of skewed political views in terms of, of you know, who's the the oppressor and the oppressee or, you know, the oppressed. Or, you know, to sort of look at it as though, like, Israelis are white and Palestinians aren't, which is a a skewed assessment of it, too. So I, I don't know where the double standard comes from. Well, you know, that's, you, you make an interesting point, and it isn't just about anti-Semitism. And in fact, I go to pains in my piece to say, I say explicitly, that the anti-Semitic kind of byproduct of all of this, okay, if you will, uh, it, it may not be intended, but it is, it, but it is undeniable, in fact, right. as a causal thing, okay? So I, I, I agree with you on making that distinction. Where it's really coming from is a, an ideology, a narrative that has replaced you know, the traditional human rights narrative, you know, which which was based on, you know, the human rights and modern human rights law actually comes out of the Holocaust. 
It comes out of the Nuremberg trials. And there's a certain approach to human rights advocacy that has been completely abandoned by the left and by human rights groups like Amnesty altogether. There's a new narrative, and that narrative is the narrative of decolonization, the narrative Mm. of intersectionality, the narrative of an ideology that supplants and completely replaces, you know, what we used to think of as a liberal internationalist narrative. So now, for example, you know, you don't even need to pay attention to history to understand that the Israelis are settler colonialists, because if you're into that kind of ideological narrative of, you know, decolonization, all right, um, then you identify Israelis quite wrongly, by the way, as settlers and therefore as oppressors, um, and you identify the oppressed uh, as the Palestinians in this case, and that's all you need to know. It's a dumbing down of our reading of history, and it's a perversion of kind of the moral uh, principles that should be at work in assessing the historical record altogether. And that's part of what's occurring on the human rights side, is that they have dumbed it down, and they have acceded to, uh, you know, what is largely a liberal left uh, narrative that, that, that is, in my view, intellectually dishonest uh, and historically completely inaccurate. Uh, and of course, it goes far beyond, you know, the issue uh, and the subject matter of human rights. It, it, in fact, it's, it's pervasive, you know, in our society, in our universities, and in our discourse generally. So to what extent has, has Canadian foreign policy fallen into that? I think initially, right, it, there, there was more of a principled stance from the government, but I think that's really become a, a lot less clear in recent weeks. Yeah, um, excellent question, uh, and it's completely succumbed to all of this. I mean, we don't really have a foreign policy in this country, and certainly not in the last 10 years. There isn't one that's discernible. Mm-hmm. If there is a foreign policy, the policy has essentially tried to be on the right side of the issues without offending anyone. And that means it's unprincipled. It shifts constantly. Uh, Our traditional, you know, stalwart position, uh, standing with Israel as our ally, has fallen away. Uh, And that's partly because we've lost the ability to criticize our allies constructively while still standing by them properly and in a principled way. So we just never know where to be. And this, this government in particular in Ottawa is is sort of guilty of this uh, of this um, you know unprincipled uh, uh, sort of approach, and it's very very susceptible to the forces these ideological forces that I referred to earlier. So there there has been a definite shift away from a principled foreign policy to one that's guided by a preoccupation with appearing to be more or less on the right side, I don't want to say on the woke side, but on the right side of the issues. And not to offend certain constituencies. Right, exactly. Well, we'll we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, We'll we'll let people know again your piece. It's up at nationalpost.com, much more as well, section1.ca. Peter, really appreciate your time here this morning. Thanks so much for joining us.